Welcome to the Ignite Physio Podcast. This podcast inspires physiotherapists and other health professionals to continue learning and growing in their practice and career. We explore professional issues with a fresh lens and delve into topics that help to expand our capacity for growth. This is episode number 35, and I'm Andrew. And I'm Maxie. And today we are continuing on with our conversation with Julie and Simon on the DTPR. Mm -hmm. Nobody thought that the DTPR could be so engaging that we would split a podcast in two, (laughs) (laughs) but it has been. Well, Yeah, it's been great. I mean, I think getting that perspective uh, from the insurance side and getting Simon's perspective, I think has been really good. And so I think you'll really enjoy this uh, second half. So let's dive in. I think I'd be interested to hear from you, Julie, like, how, how much do you use those reports? Like, are they just sort of filed away because they, you know, they have to be done? Or, you know, how much are adjusters actually looking at those reports? Um, and what information would you like to see uh, more specifically in reports that actually would make your job easier and actually just be better for the patient overall? Absolutely. We still like to have a progress about, I mean, this person's going for treatment for three months. So we want to know, how are they doing? So if we're not getting an IMC referral at the three-week point, we're going 90 days without any updates. We have no idea if this person's progressing. We have no idea if they're making improvements functionally, objectively. We have no idea until we get an A before going, oh, by the way, we want 12 more sessions because they have not significantly, or they've only minimally improved. Okay, but why have they minimally improved in 90 days? (laughs) So Peace Hills does like to get the AB3 reports, but not all therapists like to do them, and I I understand that. Um, But what's most important in these reports, the AB2 getting objective measurements, range of motion measurements, functional measurements. So this person right now cannot sleep more than six hours, cannot drive and shoulder check to the left, cannot um, wash their dishes for more than 15 minutes. Give us functional measurements as well as the objective measurements from the range of motion. And then transform that to your AB4. Give us those exact same things. Oh, they're now sleeping eight hours a day. Oh, now they're able to wash their dishes for over half an hour and, and cooking and cleaning. Give us those things so that way we can physically see what the client is doing for improvement. If they've made a 90 day, 90% improvement and you're asking for another 21 sessions, we're going to have some questions for you. <laughs> but if you, all you need is two or three more sessions just to finish off that last bit of that home exercise program, to me, that would be reasonable because they've made 90% improvement over the last 90 days. That makes sense. But what we're getting, unfortunately, is limited range of motion in their C-spine. That's what we get on an AB2. Then the AB4 says, increased range of motion in the (laughs) C-spine. You're like, by how much? By how much? (laughs) Right? We have no idea. 5%, 25, 90, we have no idea. So that, to me, would be the biggest thing that we need in those reports. And also, if the opportunity where we're not able to talk on the phone, if you want to send an email or a fax, if we're not asking for progress reports, but you're seeing some red flags, not necessarily in those t- first 21 days, but you're six or eight week or 10 weeks going, ah, oh, you know, this person's just refusing to go back to work. They're refusing to get back to routine. They're refu- whatever the case may be, pop the email, give us a fax. That may only take you five minutes to do versus a 15 or 20 minute phone call. Fair enough, right? But again, it's that communication. So when we get that A before, we're not blindsided going, hmm. What are we going to do with this person? I haven't had a clue what's been going on for the past 90 days. So that's what we'd like to see in those reports. More objective and functional findings from our AB2 and transfer that to the AB4 
If there's an opportunity for communication in between, great, let us know. And that AB4 is a good place for you to also suggest, you know, they're plateauing, you might need an IME, or maybe they need to go to a different type of clinician because of, you know, this is beyond my scope, referring for a psychologist, whatever the case is, that's what those reports are for. But certainly the reports themselves created by the government are not ideal. And you can only put in so much information in those reports. I, I find I, I find the reporting very challenging as well with my complex patients that I see because you'll often end up attaching a narrative or sending a narrative instead of the form. And that's usually outside of DTPR, so I won't get off on too big a tangent. But then it's almost like, I don't understand this narrative that you've sent. Please put it in the form so that <laughs> I, can, I can at least see something familiar. So again, it, it, it's case by case. So I think, but, but hearing that, that, that you like that objective data, that's, that's important to me because that's, I, you know, I spend a lot of time gathering that data and then putting it in and hoping that you guys have look, looked at it and then wanting to tie that into to a functional goal. That's, that's good to know too. So thanks for that. Mm -hmm. Using acronyms, by the way, for all of your testings really don't help us much. <laughs> Just so you know. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a pretty fair comment. Yeah. We can't even understand it. our colleagues' uh, acronyms, let alone. Right. Uh, right. So how, uh, I mean, I know you can't speak for all insurance adjusters, Julie, but how familiar are adjusters with some of these different outcome measures? Like, for example, like the neck disability index and using some of these different ones, uh, you know, if we actually include that in the report, are, you know, are adjusters going, I have no idea what the NDI is, you know? This like even though it's a even though it's an outcome measure that's that's functional, it may not be again meaningful to an adjuster if they don't know how to interpret that right. So are you looking for interpretation data? Like if we say, oh, you know, the NDI is the X percentage. This means mild disability. Is that helpful, or can we assume that adjusters know? What they don't assume anything. <laughs> don't assume. Okay. So. Fortunately, my background comes from a physiotherapy clinic background, so I'm very familiar with the NDI and the Oswestries and all the other uh, outcome measure uh, questionnaires that are used. Um, so I would have to say no. Most adjusters probably don't know what an NDI is or an Oswestry. So if you're going to use that as part of your um, functional data, uh, in your reports, then put NDI, put the score, and then yes, put in mild disability, mild impairment, mild, whatever the case may be. So always put in what it actually means. If you have the opportunity to actually supply a copy of the NDI, so that way when they do another NDI at the end of their program, you can give the adjuster the second one. So again, they can see the questions that have been asked. You know, how much difficulty do I have doing my home act activities or my, my household duties or driving or reading or whatever the case may be. And so that actually may be more helpful. Do adjusters need more education when it comes to that? Absolutely. Um, so again, new adjusters, middle adjusters and senior adjusters. I mean, we all take things for granted. So, um, and again, not all th adjusters have rehab background. I was very fortunate that that's where my background came from. And that's why I've really, you know, focused and have a lot of passion for this program. But no, you, you cannot assume that they know anything when it comes to the acronyms and what they, what the results may mean to you, 
you have to explain it to the therapist or to the adjusters just so that they understand that this score means mild to moderate, means partial, you know, dis perceived disability, whatever the case may be. So yeah, never assume anything because you just don't know. A seasoned therapist now would know to ask, okay, tell me, give me three things that you can't do right now that you want to be able to do in, in one month. And that's what we're going to work on right now kind of thing. And then you can embed that in your, in your AB process as well. So, yeah. Although I do use the NDI as well. Okay. <laughs> You're not anti-NDI. <laughs> not okay. anti-NDI. Okay. Can you tell me what does VAS stand for? Visual analog scale. Which is for what? For pain, usually. Okay, that's what I thought. Yeah. <laughs> it's not that it's, it's the so best. Long since it's, I've yeah, used it's it. not I'm that like, it's the best tool out there either, right? But I think it highlights the fact that we use acronyms all the time. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, you know, because some therapists will say NRS, numerical rating scale, right? And other people will use VAS. And then, so as an adjuster, you're probably wondering, like, what the heck is this? What is this even referred to? It's a seven out of 10. I don't know what that means, right? And, but we, you know, but we, I think that's always a thing as maybe even just saying when, you know, before we send off an AB tour as we're writing it, okay, if I am not a physio, can, how would I decipher this, right? I mean, that might be, because I mean, really, we have to assume that someone isn't going to have that healthcare background, obviously, right? And, and, and some may, may have that, but others may not. And it's like, how do we take that step back to then say, okay, is this, how is this going to be interpreted? Well, and I think for, for me, you know, what I'm hearing is that, I mean, it's, you're filling out these forms, right? And and I think part of it is the attitude and the the intentions that physios have when they're filling them out, right? It's a it's a way of communicating and establishing a connection with the adjuster. So it's not just I'm going to fill this form out, got to get it done, da, 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 whip it off. It is it is that initial contact that you're going to have with that adjuster. And so um, connections are important, networks are important, you know. And so if you can establish that team. That, that you can begin to establish that relationship with being more accommodating and thinking about who's on the other end when you're explaining. If with a patient, we're going to try and explain things to patients. Why would we not explain things to adjusters? Maybe because we assume that they know this stuff. But yeah, you know the rule with assuming. So, um, but, but I think it's, it's about relationships and that's my shameless plug for therapeutic <laughs> relationships. I think you're right. You're absolutely right. So let's, I know, Simon, you touched on this a little bit earlier, uh, the whole um, role of the IMC, which stands for Injury Management Consultant, one which you are, one more abbreviation. <laughs> let's throw that into the mix. But everybody <laughs> should know that one. <laughs> and how it's different from an IME. Yeah, so let's, let's, let's talk about that for yeah. a moment, because I think that uh, people get confused with that. And I, um, so let's, let's talk about the difference, IMC versus IME. Okay. Well, I should I should have my notes out because I actually made some decent <laughs> decent ones here and actually looked up what the definition of an IME actually is and everything. So the CP the CPSA the another acronym, <laughs> yeah. the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Alberta does have a definition for for an IME, and it is an independent medical examination used to determine degree of disability for someone or and or future ongoing treatment. Uh, intervention strategies and that sort of thing. So it is a physician assessment at the end of which no treatment is provided, a report is generated and, and that report goes to the party that requested the, the test. So if, if I missed anything there, Julie, jump all over it. Uh, yeah, they usually also touch base on pre-existing conditions, causation of an injury, return to work and ADL status, and then yes, address diagnosis and treatment. But the independent medical examiner does not provide the treatment themselves. They are an independent assessor and that's all.
It's always a physician, correct? Uh, yes. So it can be a GP or it can be a specialist. So when would, because uh, I'm assuming that the insurance adjuster would request the IME, obviously, because that's, you know, a physiotherapist can't request the IME. A physiotherapist can recommend it. Absolutely. We've had a few therapists who've said this client has plateaued. This client has got a lot of red flags. This client has got blah, blah, whatever it might be. And they can suggest you might want an IME. They can't refer for an IME themselves, um, it, but they can make that recommendation to the insurer, to the adjuster, and then the adjuster can use that as part of the next action plan. The therapist is seeing this, this, or that, you know, might not be a such a bad idea that we get an IME, right? Um, but the IMCs, those are being recommended by the therapist and not the insurance companies, at least at this time. Yeah. And that was uh, that was a measure put in place right at the beginning of the DTPR, so in 2004, and it was designed to two purposes. One was, one was to confirm a diagnosis. So if a therapist had made a diagnosis of, say, WAD2, and then was concerned perhaps in the first three weeks that, okay, maybe this isn't the right diagnosis, they could refer that patient out to an IMC provide relevant information regarding the current diagnosis, what tests have been done, history, and so forth. And then the IMC would make a diagnosis of, of their own and send that information back. And the other reason for referring for an IMC would be to ask for help with the treatment plan. The patient is progressing at a rate that's slower than I would expect, or they're presenting in ways that I don't feel comfortable assessing and treating. Can you please provide some treatment recommendations for this patient? The IMC would evaluate the, the patient with a and embedded within the DTPR is with a preference towards the biopsychosocial model of care. So looking at bigger things than just uh, structural medical tissue at fault. And then the IMC would provide a detailed report back to the referring therapist and the insurance company again saying, giving the details of the assessment and then giving a detailed treatment plan as far as how that would proceed. Hey, I just wanted to have a quick pause to introduce you to today's podcast sponsor, Soul. They're off-the-shelf moldable insoles, and it's the brand of insoles that I recommend to my patients and have for years. The reason I recommend them is that they're heat moldable by the patient, they've got a great arch support, and they come with options to help with different foot issues. It's really easy for customers to order, and when you refer them to Soul, they get free shipping and 10% off. Make sure to check them out at yoursoul.com forward slash health dash professionals that's y-o-u-r-s-o-l-e dot com forward slash health dash professionals all right back to the show in the initial stages of the dtpr the imc was not permitted to treat the patient so they could make all these recommendations but then they could not be involved in the treatment of that patient and i believe in I can't remember where in the middle, but it, that may have been relaxed. That you can, if the person comes back and it's outside the scope, then the then the the patient could transfer their care to another therapist to have that kind of treatment done. Say, if the treating therapist wasn't able to provide the type of service that the IMC re recommended, and then the it gets convoluted. But the IMC who did the Ref, uh, the review could be that treating therapist if if other therapists weren't available to do it 
say it's a small town or something like that. So there, it wasn't as uh, stringent as that IMC can have no involvement in the care of the patient from that point on. But there are some some conditions around that. Conditions yeah. around, yeah, yeah. it had to yeah. be ethically done, I believe. Yeah. And I think the protocols actually, or sorry, the regulation actually stipulates, except for the visit assessment and report described in this section, no further visit assessment or report by an injury management consultant in respect to the same injury is authorized by these protocols unless approved by the insurer. So in the case of a small community, if they're the only one out there, then the insurer can probably approve the fact that they can treat. Um, but I think on the most part, ideally, they shouldn't based on the regulation. So what would be the process? Uh, because, you know, you mentioned that uh, um, the IMC can be done without approval from the insurer, right? Uh, so would the treating therapist then say, I'm going to find an IMC, send the patient there? Because I know there is, an, there is a re, uh, form that you have to complete, yeah, right? There is a referral form, yeah. So, so what's the, what, can you walk us through the process uh, of how, how a treating therapist would uh, well, yeah, I, I would have the I'd have the conversation with my patient, saying either I need a confirmation of diagnosis, or I'd like some suggestions as far as where to take your treatment from here, because I think we're plateauing with what I'm being able to offer. Uh, there's a fairly straightforward referral form to the injury management consultant. I would make sure that it was one that the patient was going to be able to access in a relatively short amount of time, and that it wasn't too inconvenient for the patient to get to that person's uh, clinic. Say I would notify the insurer by telephone just hey an IMC referral will be coming across your desk just so it doesn't surprise you and then you fax the referral form off to the IMC and and to the insurance company so that would be the, the that would be the process I would follow technically the phone call part doesn't have to happen you could simply just do the referral the fax would go to the to the uh, therapist and to the insurer and that would be how the insurer would would find out but with past experience being what it is, I've learned that the phone call goes a long way to, <laughs> to smoothing over the process sure. a little bit. A part of the legislation um, with the IMC um, is that that person has a working knowledge of or experience with a biopsychosocial model, right? So I was wondering what so what is that? Like, that seems pretty loose. <laughs> like, for an IMC, like, what do you have to, what, what would that person have to be able to demonstrate that, that they did have that knowledge, right, or that so experience? So in, initially in 2004, each of the colleges, the, the CPSA for the physicians, uh, Physiotherapy Alberta College and Association now, and the Alberta College and Association of Chiropractors had to develop criteria for their members to get onto a roster of, of wanting to be an injury management consultant. So each, each uh, college came up with their own set of criteria, and that, that's what's in place, Maxi. So you, you could refer to the Physiotherapy Alberta <laughs> documents for the, for the exact, exact criteria <laughs> there. Um, but there are things such as, and I'm, and I'm not, I, I haven't reviewed it for the podcast, I apologize, <laughs> but uh, there were things like five years of practice to show that you had some advanced clinical reasoning mm -hmm. there, and then uh, experience working within that model as well were, were other components too. They did, we did, um, council at the time did put in place some uh, advanced orthopedic 
training as well, I, I believe, so that, or functional assessment, uh, pain certificate, things like this, just to show that you had done some extra steps as far as managing people with potentially persistent pain syndromes or people who are just veering off the normal normal trajectory for recovery yeah yeah and it's certainly not i'm not meaning to put, to put you on the spot with that but but it, because the biopsychosocial model in and of itself is a nebulous model it's been you know you know in the within the literature it's not well applied um necessarily so it so when we talk about the biopsychosocial model there's a lot of room, which I appreciate. Which yeah, it means a lot of different things to yes, a lot of different people. Yes, exactly. Right? Yeah. And so, so then I'm saying, well, if we're supposed to, because within the, it doesn't necessarily within the legislation talk about um, the um, biopsychosocial model within the history taking of that initial, your, the initial treating therapist, but it does speak to the history involving, you know, um, psychological, cognitive, uh, social, uh, the list, there's about five or six criterion about what we're supposed to be asking, you know, taking a history on. And so I guess I'm, I'm wondering, just in general, coming from, you know, coming from an, an adjuster's perspective, Julie, do you get that kind of information from therapists when they're reporting? Uh, that initial, the initial AB2. Two. Two. <laughs> well done. <laughs> I was reading your lips. <laughs> we do and we don't. Uh, unfortunately, there's therapists out there who don't. They, again, put on the AB2, minimal range of motion, limited range of motion, and that's all we get. Um, if we, in taking our statements, find that this person may be struggling in particular areas, then we can ask the the um therapist to address that in their AB2. So in our statement, if we, you know, to questions from the clients and they're talking about having concussion symptoms or they're, have, they're really, really depressed and, you know, extremely emotional, then we can ask the therapist in their AB2, can you please address if you find any concussion-like symptoms, if you're finding any depression-like symptoms, because of course they're not... Um, educated, uh, it's not within their scope to diagnose someone with depression, um, but they can certainly see those flags, right? They can see that they're hypersensitive, they can see that they're anxious, they can see that they're weepy, that sort of thing. So we can ask them to address that. If we take that information within our screening process of our statements, but if we don't have that opportunity to take that initial statement and they see the therapist first, then we hope that they will give us that information, but unfortunately, it doesn't always happen. Well, and it may—I mean, it may not present itself until visit two or three, right, Maxie? Like until that therapeutic relationship has been a bit better established, right? But I think it's—it uh, even as a therapist with 22 years of training and practice, you can see DTPR assessment on your schedule and think, oh, this will be a piece of cake. And then before you know it, the person is is crying, they're dizzy, they're falling over in your in your cubicle and you're thinking, how is a first year therapist going to be able to handle this and then be able to articulate what's going on on a restrictive form to someone they've never met, the adjuster, and it's putting the their patient's you know, potential um, claims going forward, you know, what I put down on that paper might limit this person in their recovery process from a pecuniary standpoint, not from a physical standpoint. But so there's all these sorts of things that the therapist is trying to process at the same time as, as wondering, 
okay, she's got a sore neck, a sore back, a sore shoulder. I'm it's taken 40 minutes to do the history. I'm 20 minutes behind with my other patient and my office manager's breathing down my neck because I haven't got yesterday's AB2 done yet. So there's all these, all of these sorts of things to try and encapsulate into that initial uh, visit. Well, and, then, is, and then you're trying to figure out, okay, well, is this a WAD2 yeah, or is yeah. it essentially a WAD3 because I know now that they're in their yeah. head without them falling over <laughs> from dizziness. And Let that, alone figure okay. out if there's any neurosymptoms, yeah, right? Like, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so, I mean, you know. that's taking a big extreme, but they're, however, yeah, right. So, so I'm sitting back, taking a breath, and going, "Okay, center. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How would I approach this?" Okay. Yeah. Right, you know. But I guess, um, I guess it just it leads me into thinking about you know physioscope, right? And, and we're talking about depression, and if we notice potentially signs of depression, maybe a new physical therapist or, or, or a less experienced physio may not notice that, but a more seasoned one may. But you know, we've talked about. Um, screening for depression or different screening tools to be able to, not that we have to pick it up, but somehow within legislation, I guess my point is within legislation, this is within the legislation. So as physios, what responsibility do we have to live up to that legislation? And if we don't live up to that, then what are the consequences to us? Well, I think it uh, ties into, you know, in a previous podcast, we had some interview I guess, uh, where we were talking about the, the pain catastrophizing scale and how there's actually some items on there that are um, would indicate uh, you know risk of suicide uh, you know uh, and and so I think the point was how as therapists what are you going to do when you actually get that response from a patient and how are you going to like what's your process or your plan around that right and I think that I mean I think that ties into what you're saying Maxie around how do we how do we manage this uh, effectively and um, yeah. What are we doing to actually, you know, the onus is on us in essence, right? And so, uh, anyways, I, I just re recall that from that, that previous interview, and it's it's pretty weighty issues, right? I mean, because who else are, is going to be screening for these these factors? That's true, and I think you know, for the junior therapist or the therapist that's not used to dealing with with complicated patients post motor vehicle collision, that's where the injury management consultant Absolutely. part or the ability to call their adjuster and say, I'm really worried about this person's mental health and I don't know what to do. And then if the adjuster is able to offer support there, then that can be that can be a big help. And just for therapists to realize that they have these avenues that they can ask for, for help in, I think is it would be really useful for the average person to know. Because you know, if the, if you skim the guidebook regarding the DTPR, then that's one thing. I'm quite certain not every physiotherapist in Alberta has read the entire regulation as it comes off the Queen's printer because it's quite a lengthy document. Or the adjusters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But given that those are the rules, you know, surrounding your practice, you should be more than just passingly familiar in, you know, what you are obligated to, to be looking for, like you said, Maxie. And then also what are your options within within those regulations and what your patient's entitled to as well, as far as if you make a reasonable request for an IMC, the insurer can't just say, you know, carte blanche, no, you can't have that if you're following the time frame guidelines and everything, right? And I think for me, and I, I've been thinking about this sort of idea in, in different areas of just my job right now, and 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 the idea that practitioners, healthcare practitioners, you know, in the community work in silos, right? You know, and sometimes I think we can not because we want to, but we can feel isolated, 
um, and that it's our responsibility. And, you know, we don't feel like we have a network um, or don't access a network. And so I think starting to reframe that in our own minds, if you're working in private practice out in the community, that there's the IMC, right? There's a there's the adjuster. <laughs> we want to believe that the adjuster, you know, is going to be welcoming of our calls and 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 that we'll be able to work together. So I think um, switching from that, maybe that sense of of this is my practice and I'm isolated in a silo that we're not. We need to create networks and and maintain those networks uh, of support. Give every adjuster the opportunity to to be supportive. I think would be it, it would be worthwhile. And then you, and then you're going to establish some of those networks, and you're going to learn more about the process, and maybe learn a bit uh, from their perspective as well. Like having conversations with adjusters where they fully believe that everybody gets better after they've had a motor vehicle collision, and you do a little bit of educating. That I really wish that was the case, but it, it's not. And here's here's why this person is showing that they're trending this way and here's what we need to do to support that person. And please don't just say, no, no, just keep going till 90 days and then their case will close. No, we need to get this stuff started. So it, um, it, it, it's challenging for, for sure on many fronts, for, for everybody, I think. At least alone the injured person who's trying to navigate all a whole new experience for them as well on many fronts. Yeah, not only do we struggle as adjusters and the therapists struggle on how to treat the client, but the client is the one who's like being stringed along and going, okay, you're telling me one thing, my insurance company's telling me another, my doctor's telling me something else. So they're the ones who get caught in the crossfire, unfortunately. So, I mean, ideally, yes, would I like all insurance adjusters to get the same training? Would I like for all adjusters to have rehab background? anatomy, terminology, you know, some of that basic information, yes. But unfortunately, that's not the world that we live in. Um, but that's why education coming from the clinicians is so important. And just be patient with us. And the good people, the good adjusters will be the ones to work to help those, those clients and, and work with the therapists. So I think a part of it as well is, is the potential that, especially maybe for junior therapists, they don't want to say, I don't know. Uh, or I, <laughs> I, I don't know how, like I, we've plateaued. Um, they may be afraid to, to speak with the adjuster about that. Um, how do you, when somebody, when a therapist calls you and, and says, we're struggling here, you know, how, how do you respond to that, that sort of a call? If they have recommendations, so after we have a discussion and we come up with an action plan, so that therapist calls and says, I don't know what else to do with this person. We have to brainstorm. We have to think outside the box sometimes. Um, you know, or does that mean that we're going to be pushing this person outside of the protocol so that we can get psychological assessments done? Then that's the case. So having that conversation or emails or facts, whatever the case is, but having that discussion from the adjuster from the therapist is important. So that way the adjuster and the therapist can create an action plan together. And to me, that's the whole part of it. An adjuster shouldn't be making decisions unilaterally. They should be talking with the therapist, figuring out, okay, this person's plateaued with physiotherapy. Do we need to maybe get a kinesiologist involved? Do we need to get an exercise therapist? Or maybe we need to get this person to an MDP, a multidisciplinary program. There's another acronym. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, because again, this may not be just about a, a frozen shoulder. It may be the, the fact the person doesn't want to go back to work. Maybe, you know, age, maybe gender, maybe all sorts of things, right? So by creating an action plan, brainstorming, 
between the therapist and the adjusters, that's the best way to create an action plan. However, in order to incorporate that action plan, we need something in writing. So if I talk to Simon and we're like, hey, you know what, I think this person would really do well in a multidisciplinary program, you know what, send that to me in a report. I've got it in black and white. As discussed with the adjuster or even just as discussed with the client, we feel a multidisciplinary program is the next course of action for their recovery. I see that as an adjuster and I can go, great, let's get this person into an MDP. But if I don't have it in black and white, I can't do anything as an adjuster. Okay, so yes, we may have that, that call, that communication, but it needs to be in a report in order for me to move forward on it. It has to be a referral, a recommendation. Yeah, and it definitely does need to be that, that black and white. I'm just reflecting on an in interaction within the last week where you know I thought I had stated pretty clearly, but I was missing the one, one visit a week for four weeks. And until until the adjuster got that, then yeah, it wasn't wasn't complete. It wasn't done. So that black and white does help. Yeah, the, a lot of the therapists <laughs> will say, you know, they've completed the DTPR and they need continued treatment. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a physio, and I'm not a chiropractor. So I have no idea what that means. Does that mean one time a month for the next twelve months? Does that mean one time a week for the next six weeks? I don't know what continued care means. That's why it has to be in black and white. What do you need from me? I can then approve it. That's what's important. And I guess the thing is, too, is that if it is, you know, uh, you know, not that there's a typical WAD injury, but, you know, assuming that people do get better, the question then comes probably up for you is like, okay, well, why do they need continued care? You know, these, these injuries should resolve, right? And why isn't it? And if there's no rationale and there's no alerting factors that were identified, well, then it becomes pretty tough to say, okay, well, sure. <laughs> Let's just have care for the next three years. <laughs> Well, that's good. Um, yeah, I think that's. I think that covers everything. Uh, you know, obviously, there's you know always more detail we could go into, but I think uh, we've had some great conversation here, and I think we've covered a, a lot of different uh, aspects of the DTPR, including many other acronyms that now people will be familiar with. So, I want to thank you guys for being on the show today. That's been awesome, and um, I hope that our listeners find this helpful in terms of uh, just feeling more equipped to handle and treat uh, patients that have been in car accidents. So, thanks, guys. Thank you very much for having us. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for the invitation. Well, I hope you enjoyed the episode. It's uh, great having you on the show today. Now, if you've been enjoying the new show, I'd love for you to leave a review on uh, iTunes as this just helps uh, more people find out about the podcast and we'd love to, to get your feedback. And if you want to check out the show notes uh, from the podcast, just go to ignitephysio.ca forward slash podcasts. And if there's any topics that you want us to cover, just uh, shoot us an email at hello at ignitephysio.ca and we'll make sure to get back in touch with you and, and see what we can do there. So anyways, thanks for joining us on the show today. Take care. All right. Bye-bye.